We worship the God who is the Ancient of Days. None before Him, certainly none above Him, no other God. Good morning. I am so glad to see you. Go ahead and open your Bibles or keep your Bibles open to uh, Acts chapter 10. We are continuing our study on the champions of the church, but with a little bit of a different focus. We've taken time to look at those whom God has used in the life to establish the church as God established the church. We have looked at uh, those who were kind of heroes of the faith. But we need to recognize and understand, and we do, that the church is people. The church are those from various races and cultures now brought together in a new relationship. Brought together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Brought together as the family of God. Brought together in partnership one with another. And we looked at this text, portion of this text, last week where we talked about how God is now opening the door... And making it happen that the Jewish believers, the gospel came first to the Jews, the disciples were Jews, Jesus was a Jew, they were God's chosen people, and how that now God has given the commission to them, but he's, he's, the Holy Spirit has always been around, he's one of the agents of creation, God plural, and in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, uh, but now there's a new way of relating, now the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer and the commission to the jew is different now it's no longer simply receive people that come but we are to go and spread the gospel we've looked at very aspects of this but up until this point in history the christian church was in jerusalem primarily also samaria also we have one representative going to ethiopia that we know of but it is primarily a group of Jews who have come to faith in Christ, Messianic Jews, if you will, Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And now God is opening the door. Jesus is by sending Peter to Cornelius. And Cornelius was an Italian. He was a Roman soldier. He was based in Caesarea down on the coast. Peter has been on mission, and we talked about Peter last week and how God prepared him and how God had to deal with some of his prejudices, some of the teachings that he had been raised with the things that he had been taught from the time he was born some of the practices that had even been commanded by God in the past and how that God has changed all this now and while this is a story about Peter it is even more a story about Cornelius it's a story about this Italian Roman Gentile soldier while Peter is being changed he's being sanctified he's being conformed to the image of Christ Cornelius, in this account, experiences the more radical change, the more radical transformation. Cornelius is brought from death to life. Cornelius is brought from darkness to light. Cornelius is brought from being lost, to being, from being separated from God, to being saved, to being rescued by God, to being a new creation in Christ Jesus. He is one who meets God, is brought to life by God. And is placed securely for eternal life with God. All through God's work in Jesus Christ. So, But even beyond our look at Peter. And we will look at Cornelius today. I pray that today as we take time in this passage. We will see God in this account. Who's the hero of this story? Who's the one that's working and moving? It is God Almighty. Beyond Peter as preacher and Cornelius as convert. We want to see God moving and how does God save the lost and how did 
Cornelius gets saved? How does God work through Peter and work in Cornelius? And indeed, how does God work in our world? And so the title of this message today, and if you're following along on the outline, I would encourage you to do so. But the title of the message today is How God Saves a Good Man. How God Saves a Good Man, the story of Cornelius. And we picked up our text in Acts chapter 27. And in Acts chapter 27, Peter has already had his vision on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. Those that Cornelius had sent have already come and greeted him at the door and invited him to come. Peter's invited them in and they come. And so they made it to Cornelius' house. When Peter walks into Cornelius' house, well, by the way, Peter's not alone. He's got some of the circumcised. He's got Jewish believers with him. And when he walks inside, Cornelius sees him and Cornelius falls down at his feet. And Cornelius begins to worship him. And of course, Peter immediately puts a stop to that. I'm just a man as you are. Get up. Stand up. And, you know, Peter goes on with the text, and I want us to, we'll stay fairly close to the text. Peter makes him stand back up and make sure they all knew he was just a man. And then he asked Cornelius, why did you send for me? What was Cornelius' response? Scott just read the text. What was Cornelius' response? response Cornelius tells him what we already had the record of earlier in Acts chapter 10 well I was praying and an angel came and spoke to me and basically what he said is the angel said my prayers had been heard my alms the my care for the poor had risen as a remembrance before the Lord and he told me to send for you. I want to want to shape this a little bit different way. I think what we need to get from this, at least to start with, is that what Cornelius responds to Peter, why did you send for me? Is because Cornelius says, because God told me to. God came to me first. God spoke to me first. God sent for me before I sent for you. There are a few things about salvation and about God's working that I want, want to make sure that we see clearly in the text. If it's in the text, let's study the text, make sure it's there. But salvation, the first statement is just a statement. Salvation is initiated by God. It is God who saves. Amen. Salvation is initiated by God. He spoke to me. The angel came to me. God sent someone to me. He sent for me. And then I, he told me to send for you. Now, I do want you to know that when we're looking at the principles of salvation, Cornelius had a vision. Not everyone who gets saved gets this. Matter of fact, we don't have very many accounts in Scripture up to this point where there was that kind of experience. What we have is an internal experience, not a vision. But what we do find consistently throughout Scripture, certainly through experience, but consistently taught and demonstrated throughout Scripture, particularly in the people who get saved in the book of Acts, is that they begin to search for Christ, they begin to search for God, they begin exposed after God initiates the search for them. Their search for God is always a product of God seeking and saving Our testimony is always, I came to a point in my life where I recognized something was missing. I was devoid of God. I was a sinner, unclean, or there was something that I was missing. And once we get to that point, we come to faith in Christ by His Holy Spirit. We look back and we see that I was searching and found God through Jesus Christ. And looking back, I realized He was first searching for me. This is a truth that we know. We know that it shows up throughout Scripture. Years ago, Joseph Condor wrote a hymn in 1836 that says, part of the first verse says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, 
for Lord, that could not be. My heart would still refuse thee if you had not chosen me. The part of the second verse, he goes on, My heart owns no other before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I loved thee, that thou must have loved me first. Here's the point I want to make. Salvation, conversion, becoming a new creation in Christ is always initiated as God moves upon the face of the earth. Even John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God moves and God's wor- God works. There are so many places in Scripture that you see this. God sent His Son, John 3.16. It is God that draws, John 6.44. It is God who chooses, Ephesians chapter 1. It is God who appoints, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. It is God who has sent His Holy Spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, John 16. It is God who opens our eyes that have been blinded by our own sin, uh, own sin. Isaiah 35, 5, Ephesians 4, 18. There's just so much throughout Scripture that identifies that it is God who comes to us. And this is good news, particularly if you're curious about God, if you're curious about salvation. If you're curious about what it means to be saved and if you need to be saved, if you are in some way searching, you can search with confidence. Because if God indeed initiates salvation and He draws and He wakes you up and He convicts and He provides the means by which you are to be saved, your knowledge of His absence is an indication of His presence. Is that confusing enough? Your knowledge that there's a need, this hunger, this thirst is something that indicates God is already working in your heart. So the first truth to embrace is that salvation is initiated by God. It's enabled by God. And this is the good news because we would not seek for God if He didn't first seek for us. I certainly don't believe Cornelius would have. And I want to I want us to look at this guy because this next statement really challenges a lot of people. And I can share with you testimony after testimony. And I will share some, I think, I hope that demonstrate the truth that we see evidenced here. Do you think that Cornelius would have called Peter had the angel not asked him to or told him to? Was Cornelius a good man? Engage with me here for a minute. Don't go sleep yet. We'll save that for later. Was Cornelius a good man? The Bible says he was. The Bible says Cornelius was devout and pious. He was wealthy, no question about that, because of where he lived, because of his position. He had authority and responsibility. He had a large household. He wasn't self-centered to the extent that he did not give alms to the poor. He cared for his community. As a matter of fact, his reputation in the Jewish community was such that all the Jews in the neighborhood said, that's a good man. And they had pretty high standards when it came to what's good and what's bad. Cornelius was a good man. And we see that the angel appeared to Cornelius and said, Cornelius, you're a good man. And you know what you need? You need to be just a little bit better. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said, in case you're curious. The angel said, what you need is to be saved. What you need is to hear the message that God's given Peter to bring to you. What is that message? It is the message 
of the gospel. I think there's a point that we need to grasp and that we need to understand when we talk about how God saves people. How can God save a good person? It's pretty simple. We need to recognize that God saves us by overcoming the challenge of our own goodness. And so if you're taking notes, go ahead and make that on the second line. Salvation has to, or salvation does, true salvation happens when the challenge of goodness is overcome. Cornelius reminds me of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he wasn't a Pharisee, one of those who were shooting arrows and darts at at, at Jesus. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 comes to Jesus at night and he addresses him with reverence and respect. Master, rabbi, rabbani, we know that thou art a teacher, come from God. For no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with them. This is the utmost in respect. He's speaking well. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is a religious guy. He is a top performer. And he comes to Jesus to, to, to meet him on the search, if you will. I want to know who you are. I want to know more about you. I know that you are come from God. And what is Jesus' immediate response to Nicodemus? What's the very first thing he says to him? Truly, truly, verily, verily. Hey, pay attention, bud. You must be born again. He doesn't start with his goodness. He doesn't start with his righteousness. As a matter of fact, what he's telling Nicodemus in that very statement is all your goodness doesn't count. It counts for naught. You've got to start from scratch. You must be born again as a, as a picture of what it means to be made new. Uh, here, here's the issue that we have. God does not say to good people, to moral people, you're almost there. I'm proud of you. I'm glad that you believe this way. I'm glad that you husbands are faithful to your wives and you wives are faithful to your husbands. I'm glad that you go to church on a regular basis. I'm glad that you give. I'm glad that you're kind to people who are different from you. I'm glad that you exercise patience. I'm glad that you dress modestly or reasonably modestly, modestly according to the standards of the culture. I'm glad that you're kind to strangers and you don't kick your dogs and cats. I'm glad that you're good. And because you're good, you're okay or you will be okay. But I want you to understand that that is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel, salvation has you overcome that by pointing out that there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that hasn't sinned. There's none that doesn't need to salvation. This is significant. The angel comes to Cornelius and says, Peter, you're one of the good guys and you need to be saved. You're one of the good guys and you need to be saved. See, here's the problem that we have. We tend to think that there is a group of people who are really kind of messed up. They're the criminals, they're the crooks, they're the thieves, they're the liars, they're the mean people, they're the gossip, they're the drug addicts, they're the sexually immoral. They may be just people who share a completely ungodly value system. They may be profane, and you look at those people, and it's very clear something's wrong with those guys. They don't know God, they don't love God, they don't care about the things of God, they don't respect themselves, much less respect anyone else. They look like this, they talk like this, they act like this. And those people need to be saved. Can you relate to that statement? Yes, no, yes. 
we know people that we would look at them and say, those people need to be saved. But here's the point that we get from Cornelius' example. The religious people, the ones who go to church, the good people, the ones who teach and the ones who give, the ones who exercise morality, must be born again. Our righteousness does not qualify us to be saved. And until you grab that, until you get that, until the pin drops on that in your own heart, you will not be saved. Get this. Salvation is not a call to traditional values. Salvation is not a call to become in behavior a moral people. Cornelius, Nicodemus, these are moral people. These are people who exercise traditional values. And yet their call to them is that they be saved. As a matter of fact, their very righteousness becomes a challenge to their understanding of their need to be saved. I think probably one of the ways that we can define lostness, and you guys can think through this with me. I, I wish you would in, in, engage a little bit. But I think one of the ways that we define lostness is who's the God of your life? And what it means to be lost is that you're the God of your life or you make someone or something else the God of your life. So what does it mean to displace God? What does it mean for you to, be, to put yourself in the place of God? There are two ways that we do that. One of them is we thumb our nose at God and His morality, God and His law, God and His uh, description of righteousness throughout Scripture and what it means to be righteous. And we become profane and blasphemers and rebels. Got any rebels here? We go our own way. We do what we want to do. We hang out with who we want to hang out with. And we, we, we abuse who we want to abuse. We become those who break all the moral rules as a way of making ourselves supplant God as He should be in our hearts and our lives. Or at least as a demonstration of what has happened because we've made ourselves the God of our own heart. Does that make sense? Are you with me? I lost you. Wake up. Part it. Nod every once in a while. Oh, really? Seriously? Because there's another component here. You can look at those people, what we call the rebellious. But then you've got these whole religious or righteous people as well. And the other way that you supplant God is you follow all the rules. And you become as good as you can possibly be. And you become a rule keeper as a way of demonstrating your own righteousness, that you can do, that you can be what you should be to be able to be right with God. And what happens is one of two things. If you're a rule keeper and not saved, you're either going to become self-righteous. You remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18? I thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector over here. And you get kind of proud and puffed up. I'm pretty good, pretty good, making it okay. We're doing all right. Or you become one of those people who are guilty all the time because you never quite measure up. There's always more that you should do. You never get this rest. You never get peace. There's always something else that's got to be addressed, something else that's got to be worked on, something else, something else, something else, something else. And there's no peace and there's no rest. Either self-righteous or this sense of guilt that you carry around. And that's a way that we supplant God in our life. That's an indication that we have not 
been saved. The declaration of the gospel is that you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. It is the ones who think, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. Those are the ones who are in need of salvation. This is the challenge of salvation that must be overcome. The one who thinks he is not okay is on his way. The one who recognizes a need is on the way. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees when they gave him such a hard time about hanging out with sinners? What, what did he say to them? You guys remember this in, in the Gospel of Matthew? It's not the healthy that need a physician. It's the sick. It's the ones who recognize they have a problem that will respond to the great physician. Salvation is initiated by God. Salvation comes as God overcomes the challenge of our own sense of our own goodness. And we recognize our need for the Savior. But what else we find in this passage with Cornelius is that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. I love this because you and I, we can't work for our own salvation. It is God who works in us. We get this in chapter 10, verse 44 and 46, while Peter is preaching. Get this. Here's what happens. Peter is in there. Now, we're going to get to the, the, the part we skipped over in just a minute. Peter comes into Cornelius' house, and we already talked about this last week. He says, normally I couldn't even come in here because I was taught that as a good Jew, I couldn't come into a Gentile's house, certainly not to break bread. I, can, I couldn't and can't fellowship with you, but God has shown me that he shows no partiality, that there's no one that I should call defiled, common, or unclean. Basically, what he's saying is the gospel is for everybody, regardless of their race, regardless of their color, regardless of their language. The gospel is for everyone, and I am here to convey to you this word. And then Cornelius, as he shares the gospel, while he is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls down upon them. And there is this demonstration of the power of God as God brings life to Cornelius and his household. It is God's work. Titus chapter 3 says that we are born by the Spirit of God. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the words. And the believers from among the circumcised, those Jewish Christians who were there, who had come with Peter, they were amazed because this evidence, the gift of the Holy Spirit, this salvation, this regeneration, was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and praising God or extolling God. And then Peter goes on to declare, look, they have the same evidence that, we, that they have been saved as that we have been saved. So let's, let, let, let's take just a moment and talk about salvation being a work of God. You are called to repent and believe. You are called to wake up, to, to be transformed, to surrender and to yield. And the Bible repeatedly makes this call that you must come and meet Christ at the foot of the cross. You must come with empty hands. You must come saying, I can't save myself. I must depend upon you. I must cast myself upon you. I must yield to you. And he saves us. The call is to repent in faith. And the truth is that God initiates and culminates salvation by regeneration heart. And I'm not quite sure how those all go together. I just know that they're both true. I know that God works through the repentance of his people, but I also know that God enables his people to repent. Both of those are the truth of Scripture. And they don't stand in contradiction to each other. In many cases, they don't even stand in contradistinction to each other. They complement each other by the work of a divine God. 
but there is a legitimate and real transformation. There are two marks of spiritual transformation in this account. I love this. What do they do? The Holy Spirit falls upon them, He makes them new, and immediately they begin speaking in tongues and praising God. All right, now, I believe those are the two evidence that we get in this passage of Scripture. That this is genuine, divine conversion. God moving and rescuing these Gentiles, these Romans, these Italians. And, and, and making them part of his body, the church. And it's pretty exciting stuff. And so how do we know? How do we know that they are genuinely saved? The two marks of spiritual transformation in this account are they're speaking in tongues and they're praising God. And I want us to kind of start with the second one of those first. What does it mean to extol to praise, to adore, to worship God. i got to tell you, it's more than singing a song. It's more than quoting a verse. It's more than giving an offering. What he's talking about here is the devotion of your heart. What he's talking about here is the priority of a person in your mind. How you think. What does it mean to worship? Worship is to ascribe ultimate value to something or someone. It is to cherish, to adore, proskuneo, to bow the knee before one, liturgia, to expend your life in service on behalf of one. Who is the one? Let's just pull it down. Who's the one you love the most? Who's the one you love the most? Who's the one that has the priority in your life? Who's the one that you say, there's the one I'm living for? There's the one I will give my life to you. Everyone does that with something. Everybody worships something. Some of us, it's our own independence. We worship our own selves and our own wisdom, our own ability to do things. We don't want to be dependent upon anyone. Some of us worship the pleasures of the flesh. We live for the next meal. We live for the next drink. We live for the next movie. We live for the next book. We live for the next whatever it is that feeds the pleasure of our bodies. Some of us live for people's approval. If somebody frowns at us, it keeps us awake at night. If somebody criticizes us, it just knocks us off the rails. We do what we do so that we will have affirmation and approbation from either people we place upon a pedestal or from society or from a group of our own peers. Some of us not only... Uh, worship, those sorts of things. For some of us, it's simply power. We like to be the boss. We like to be in control. But here's what I want you to understand. You are controlled by what your heart most values. You are controlled by what your heart most values. And that doesn't change until God changes who you worship. When He becomes what you value most. That's extolling God. That's adoration. That's worship. That's the demonstration of a new heart. That's what the Ezekiel passages are about. That's what so many of the New Testament passages are about. God put a new heart in me. What does that mean? All of a sudden, I'm no longer the most important person in my life. My wife is no longer the most important person in my life. My kids are no longer the most important person in my life. My grandkids are no longer the most important person in my life. 
My church and my work are no longer the most important person in my life. My political party is no longer the most important group of people in my life. My nation is no longer the most important person in my life. All of a sudden now, there's one who is central in my life. There is one that I want to please. There is one that I, I love, value, and adore. And that is God Almighty. And everything else, my love for Him makes everything else seem like hate. That's what Jesus meant when He talked about the cost of discipleship. And said, you've got to hate father and mother and sister and brother. And that's in, in comparison to the amount of love I have for Him. Everything else is off, is, is off the charts at the bottom because He's off the charts at the top in my devotion. You understand what I mean when I talk about a change of heart? I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. You can't read the New Testament and look at the doxologies of the Apostle Paul. Look at the examples of Peter. Look at these believers who are just so enraptured with the presence of God. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms and you'll see what it means to have a heart devoted to God. When it says in this passage of Scripture that they began extolling God, this was the evidence that they had a new heart, that they had a new life, that they were made new in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but it says that the other sign was after the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they were speaking in tongues. If you go to the next chapter, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he's telling all those people what happened. And he says, look, I got there and I preached And the Holy Spirit fell on them just like He did on us at the beginning. He's going back to Pentecost. And there is a point that God makes in this passage, I believe, a point that's made in Scripture by the Holy Spirit that we need to make sure that we apply in our life. And that is not only does God change my heart and change my mind about who He is and the place He has in my life, He changes my mind about you. He changes my mind about my neighbor. He changes my mind about Canadians and Mexicans. changes my mind about Filipinos and the Chinese. He changes my mind about the people who live on the right side of the tracks in two million dollar houses. And he changes my mind about people who don't own a house, but they're struggling to get by renting check by check. He changes my mind about people like me and people distinct from me. And what he says is, None of this stuff separates us from one another. There is no one language. There's no one culture that is the language of salvation. Everyone heard the gospel in their own language. It comes to every group and every culture. Every, there is no, there, there is, there is no uh, divine group. Here's what happened. It's no longer a political group. It's no longer a geographical national group. All of a sudden now, Christianity is something new. They didn't even know what to call them. Because now some of them were Jews and some of them were Greeks. And some of them were Roman Greeks. And some of them were Hellenistic, way more Greek Greeks, uh, Gentiles rather than Greeks, Gentiles. Some of them came from Bithynia. Some of them came from North Africa. Some of them came from further south, sub-Saharan Africa. Some of them came from the west. Some of them came from the far east. Who do we call these people? Oh, well, what unifies them? What unifies them now? Christ. So we'll call them Christians, little Christs, those who follow Christ and Christ alone. And so we get this evidence of the change is is how you view God and your adoration to Him, but also how you view others, which is demonstrated through the speaking in 
other languages. Let me see if I can illustrate. Well, no. We'll move ahead. (laughs) Ta ethna. Every language, every group, every people. The fourth point, and the last thing I want us to look at really quick, is that salvation comes through the words of the gospel. When Peter came to preach, what did he preach? Peter walks in the house. Cornelius, why am I here? Cornelius, I don't know. God came to me, saw the devotion of my own heart, and told me to sin for you. So you tell me what God's told you to tell me. And Peter begins to preach. And what does Peter preach? Peter preaches Jesus. Peter preaches Jesus. He preaches Jesus' perfect life in verse 38. He preaches Jesus' death on the cross in verse 39. He preaches Jesus' resurrection in verse 40. He preaches that Jesus is the judge of both the living and the dead. And he ties that in, you know he does, uh, it, to, to Jesus' death on the cross in verse 43. And he declares that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name, verse 43. We have this evidence of salvation. We have this gospel prec- proclamation and so the fourth thing if you don't if you if if you haven't written it down yet please get it down salvation comes through the words of the gospel faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of god christianity is not so you'll have a good day christianity is not so you'll excel at your job Christianity is not a list of doctrines or a list of rules. Yes, it includes teaching. Yes, it includes the eternal teaching of God's Word as a demonstration. But salvation is coming to a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Peter comes to them and he just declares, this is just truth. We walked with him on this earth. We saw him live a righteous life. No sin. We walked with him. We lived with him for years. He went to the cross. And there he died. Hung on a tree. He was resurrected. And he appeared to those whom God appointed as witnesses. And that was us. And we not only saw him. This was not some vision. We not only saw him. We sat down and ate with him. We ate food at the table with him. We saw him eat. And we ate with him. He lives as God's promised Messiah as the only means of forgiveness and as the only way of salvation. So what we ask, what one should ask, when there's this question about God and relationship with God and what it means to know God is not, will this work for me or is this suitable or is this a good religion for me to pursue? But it should be simply, is it true? Is it true? Our culture has a lot of trouble with that. Our society has a lot of culture, a lot of trouble with just absolute truth in general. But I've got to tell you, it doesn't matter whether they do or not. The question that matters is, is it true? And Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by Him. One of our local pastors wrote in a book, he said, there is more healing in Jesus than there is sickness in us. There is more forgiveness in Him 
then there is sin in us. There is no struggle, no addiction, no brokenness that His power cannot heal. True or false? True. True. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. So how do we respond? If you're here, how does God save a good man, by the way? How does God save a good man? First of all, by initiating, by seeking, by calling, by drawing, by appointing, by initiating. What does God do then? God demonstrates His need of a Savior. He has to, to overcome even our own sense of goodness that, that for those who are religious. has to overcome our own sense of, of goodness so that we recognize that, that we're lost. And then God pours out His Spirit. And salvation is the, the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And then... It comes as you and I are faithful to proclaim the word of God as, as the gospel, God's truth that he has given to us and that he has given us to proclaim. So if you're seeking, I want you to know salvation is found in Christ alone. And I want you to be encouraged. I really do. I want you to be encouraged because if you're seeking God, that means God has sent for you. God has initiated this process in your life and so if you're seeking him it's because he has sought you and your call is to repent and to faith and to faith to yield your life to him for those of us who have been saved washed in the blood of the lamb only christ is, is sufficient to forgive sin only christ is sufficient to heal to place in us a new heart to open our eyes and understanding for those of us who have been saved what does this truth do for us it should capture our hearts it should make us love him all the more. We have done nothing to be worthy of his great salvation, but because he first loved us, we are permitted the privilege of loving him, of knowing him, of walking with him day by day. Listen, I want you to celebrate the goodness of God. Today's is a lesson. It's a lesson on how God works in salvation. How God brings about conversion in people's hearts. And I want us to know this because, folks, if you're here and you haven't been converted, I want you to know Jesus Christ as Savior. But if you're here and you're already saved, I want you to be the means by which others hear this good news. And it is so freeing for us to know that salvation is a work of God. We are simply instruments that God uses to accomplish His work as we faithfully proclaim His good news by demonstrating love to one another, and love to those who do not know him. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the look that we took at, at first of all, Peter. But now the look at Cornelius. He was a good man. He was a good man who was lost. He was a good man who did not know you. He was a good man who was separated from you by sin. And yet, Father, when you came to him and you made him aware of his need, that he needed the gospel, that he needed the message, that he needed salvation, you had the representative ready. You had the witness ready. You had prepared Peter to go. And Peter obediently came. Father, as Peter spoke the words of the gospel, and as Cornelius and his household listened, they responded to the gospel, and your spirit was poured out upon them. And you made them new. You made them into something they've never been before. You saved them. 
Father, I, my prayer is that that will have been our experience. Those of us who are here, if that's not been our experience, that you will make it our experience. That you will, you will call to yourself those who are not saved, particularly in this place and in the sound of this message. I pray, Father, for those of us who are saved, that you'll remind us that we have so much to praise you for. You are the ancient of days. Yeah, you, you're the one who works in your own ways. You're the one who redeems and rescues and calls and you saved us. Help us to renew our love and our passion for you, our worship for you, our adoration for you. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together.